Welcome back to Crushing It Real Estate with Joanne Tan. I don't often meet people around my age who are in the same line of work in terms of real estate as myself. And that's exactly why I started putting myself out there on Instagram, because to me, multifamily is a great asset class. And I just think not enough young people, not enough millennials are really investing in it. And I have on the show with me today is Chris Grenzig. Chris Grenzig, who is a multifamily syndicator. And I'm happy to have met Chris while I was researching multifamily investing. He is actually one of the first syndicators that I reached out to when I first got started. And I just remember he was so open and willing to help out a newbie like myself. So I'm very happy to have Chris on the show with me today. How are you doing, Chris? I'm good. Thank you for having me on and saying such kind things about me. I appreciate it. (laughs) <laughs> Did you want to let people know, you know, how you got into real estate and, you know, how you made that transition and that jump and how, how you got into multifamily? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to dive in. So, so where I like to start, um, I graduated college in 2014. Um, I'm Long Island born and raised. I went to Hofstra University, which is on Long Island. I was a division one student athlete, played soccer. And I did nothing right for coming out of college. I had no jobs lined up. I had no work experience. I didn't do any internships or anything. So just lucky I had a really great friend hook me up with a Division two coaching job in Massachusetts. So I went up there, did that for a year, and really liked the college coaching role, but didn't like being away from family, didn't like being away from friends, and I didn't like youth coaching and basically making no money. So the job I had was part-time and I was making $5,000 a year. So it was next to nothing. Um, So came back, I got another coaching job in Queens, New York, and then decided to enter the business world. And that's where I got a job as a cold caller for a stock brokerage firm um, on Long Island. And that was like my foot into the business world, into the investment world. And I loved it. I cold called for, you know, several months and then eventually got licensed. So I had my series seven and my 63 and I learned a ton from there, you know, cold calling, how to sell, how to talk to people, learned a lot about the market, how the economy works, how business works, and really liked the investing side of it and learned a ton of how people built wealth and through that, I learned how my parents had built a ton of wealth because they just invested for years and years and years. Um, you know, they were the type of people to take $50 a month, $100 a month, $1,000 a month, and just put it away for the long term. And that's how they were able to be super successful as well as being you know, really good at their jobs and starting businesses and stuff. So made a lot of sense to me. However, I wasn't a big fan of that world. Um, it's not at all like you saw in the Wolf of Wall Street and how it used to be back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. But it definitely has some echoes of that. And the biggest thing that I came away with was it was very much an attitude of what commission can I make off my clients, not what can I make for my clients. And I felt that was very backwards in an investing role, in an advisory role. So I was looking for a way out. And in January of 2016, my mom and my cousin decided to buy a single family flipping course. And they knew I was thinking about leaving. I wasn't exactly sure yet at the time because I just gotten licensed and I thought maybe I can, you know, do things differently. And of course not. So, um, they dragged me along to the weekend seminar and that was my first introduction to it. I knew nothing before that. Um, the example I like to give is I thought asbestos was a type of mold, did not know what it was at all. Um, so I literally went from knowing nothing and, Loved it, fell in love with it instantly. You know, I got sold a little bit. The coaching course tells you, you know, you're going to make hundreds of thousand dollars a year right out of the box using other people's money. And it's possible, but it's significantly harder than they make it seem. Um, So we tried that for several months, nights, weekends, uh, and ultimately failed. Never bought a home, never flipped a home, um, spent a ton of money trying to find homes, but never did anything. And it was really twofold. One, the program wasn't the best fit for a high cost of living area. Um, so like you in the Bay area or like us in New York, um, not super fit, but really came down to a lack of execution from us. Um, we could have easily taken those systems and processes and ways of doing things and resources and fit it for our area. 
but we just saw margins were razor thin. Competition was super high in our area. And we had started networking and talking to people and looking online and realized a lot of people invest out of state. And we didn't realize that that was something you could do. So started learning about that and met a flipper who was doing it out of state. And what we said was, Hey, instead of trying to just beat a dead horse and do it ourselves, let's work with someone who has more experience. So we said, Hey, can we help you in any way? Be it, you know, help you do the deal, bring some capital, do some resources and learn from you. And he said, sure. So we ended up being his hard money lender for that deal. Learned a little bit. Um, wasn't as experienced as we thought he was. Um, so didn't learn a ton, but he was a really great resource because he, his cousin uh, is John Cohen, who is one of the owners at Toro where I've worked for the last almost four years now and met John and just that flip ended up doing okay. We made our money back and it was a good experience and met John. And that's when we kind of got introduced to the multifamily world. It was something we had started learning about. It was something John had transitioned into. So he had been buying single family homes at auction in Philly. That was something we tested out, didn't like it immediately um, and decided to try the multifamily space. And we said the same thing to John. We said, Hey, you know, we don't really want to do educational course again. Um, we would love to just help you and learn from you. And he said, you know, well, I need some investors for this eight unit he was doing in Covington, Kentucky, which is right across the river from Cincinnati. And we said, sure. So invested passively in that. And all we said was, Hey, let's just grab coffee once a week, jump on a phone call every other week, whatever it was, I forget. And can we just pick your brain? And he said, sure. So did that. And just as we started talking for a little while, just found really good synergies together and just started helping him out with some other things. So he wanted to start a meetup and we said, Hey, we'll, we'll help you out. We'll take it over. We'll run it. So we started doing a free meetup every month. We had been doing that for like three and a half years on the run until the pandemic. And we took off a couple months. Um, and then we actually joint ventured on a, another 17 units in the same area. We joint ventured on an 82 unit deal down in Jacksonville, Florida, um, that one of the people from our meetup actually found. So there was five of us involved. And then right around the time we were doing that 17 unit, I was still working as a stockbroker. This was like July, 2016. So, you know, several months later and I was done, I was ready to quit. I was super, you know, I wasn't quite depressed, but I was super downtrodden. I hated my job. I hated going to work, um, put on a bunch of weight and I was like, this is it. I'm out. And just, I don't know if it was luck or right place, right time, but happened to be sitting down with John one day, him and his partner, Don had just formed a company fairly recently, uh, called Toro. Um, in like late 2015, they were working on bigger projects. So hundred plus unit projects, and they were looking to bring someone in to help out with some of the stuff they were doing. Asked if I had any interest. I said, sure. Quit my job basically the next day, uh, moved over there full time. Um, they kind of put me on a trial basis for either three or six months. And I guess it worked well because I've been there for almost four years. Um, we've bought around 4,000 units, just under $300 million worth. Um, and yeah, it's been a really interesting ride since. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that whole journey with us. Mm -hmm. And I think you touched upon some really interesting things, right? Like one, you never gave up, but also even when things didn't work out mm -hmm. per se, the way you thought they were, they worked out some other way later on that if you had maybe not persisted, wouldn't have gotten the same end result as you have gotten now. Yeah. The other thing too is like, Real estate is really a team sport, right? So you reached out to people, you asked to pick their brain. And I think a lot of people are scared to do that, but they don't realize it's really hard to do real estate, especially like syndicating or buying these large properties on your own mm -hmm. and without a team. But it sounds like you found the right people and was there at the right time because you mentioned like you weren't sure if it was luck or something, but they mm -hmm. say that luck favors the prepared, right? 100%. And you had been working with John and the team already for, for a while, even before that opportunity came up. So mm -hmm. I would just say to people, people who are trying to, you know, get started, just keep persisting, don't give up and, you know, be prepared for when the opportunity does come about, right? Yeah, hundred percent. I think one of the things that I really like about kind of the real estate world for most people, not everybody, there's so many people that are willing to help out other people because 
they've also received help in one way or another. And you can reach out to so many people and within reason, ask them questions, ask them for connections, help them out. Because like you said, it is a community. It is a, a space that helps each other. And it is, you know, somewhat of a team effort, even if you're doing deals by yourself, you know, I've, I don't know if I know anybody that owns 100% of every single deal they've ever done. There's so many people that, yeah, maybe most of their deals are their own money, but I would bet somewhere along the way, you know, they let someone into a deal or they borrowed some money or, you know, they did a joint venture with someone. So, so many people come together and collaborate and it's such a unique space because you can come together and work with somebody just on one deal. You can work together for 20 deals and then you can kind of go off and do your own thing. And there's not a lot of, you know, as long as you are upfront with people and talk to them, there's not a lot of negativity around that. Like you can come together for some deals and not other deals. So it's a really cool community to be in because there's a lot of people that are willing to lend a hand, help you out and kind of give back. And that's why I try to do it as well. Cause there were so many people and even still today that are willing to help and be resourceful, um, connect you with other people, do things for you um, because you know, you'll get it back tenfold. It really truly is a very unique community. These like real estate and real estate investors that I find, well, I haven't found this type of collaboration anywhere Mm -hmm. else, right? Like I used to work at a fortune 500 company. It -hmm. was definitely not like that there. And you were in the stock world. I'm pretty sure it probably wasn't like that either, but there is just so much willingness to help in the real Mm -hmm. estate um, community. That's part of what really drew me into. Yeah. I mean, comparing it to the stockbroker world, you would basically fight tooth and nail for any single lead and anything that even felt like, you know, a percent of a lead you wouldn't want to give up and you would keep for yourself. Like we had, they were a little bit old school, but drawers and drawers of paper leads that you would go through and call and do this stuff. And if you had a conversation with anybody, you would keep that lead. You wouldn't put it back. And because you didn't want somebody else to be the one that called it and got that lead. But here, I mean, I got a new deal. I literally got a deal in Kentucky sent to me. I called up like five people I know that own deals in the same market. And I had no problem telling them what the deal is because I know that, you know, a lot of people have an abundance mindset in real estate where it's, they know that, Hey, you know, he's working on this deal. I don't need to come in and, step in and steal a deal because there's so many deals out there over the years. And, you know, I'm going to help him because he's asking for it and I have resources or knowledge that he may not. So yeah, it's, it's a very different, a very different outlook than a lot of other things that I've experienced. Right. Like everything else is like everybody on their own for themselves, but real estate, I think it really has to do with that abundance mentality that you Mm -hmm. talked about. Like, I know I had that own shift myself into one, into an abundance Mm -hmm. mentality when I got into real estate, because you know, like there will be other deals. If you lose this one, it's okay. If you pass it along, that's fine Mm -hmm. too. But um, I wanted to go back to something that you mentioned earlier when you were working with John. He was still buying some single family properties and of Philly, right? Like you guys tried it out and really quickly you knew that wasn't for you. How did you know? And like, what about multifamily attracts you more than the single family market? Yeah. So the Philly stuff was interesting. So when we met John, he had basically just finished selling off his last couple homes. So he had fully transitioned out. And when we met him originally, what we were thinking was we'll do what he had done in Philly and just flip homes for super cheap. Cause you could buy a hundred thousand dollar property for three grand cause they're um, tax deed properties that they're auctioning off. So my cousin and I actually, they put out like a 500 property list for every weekend or every other weekend. I really don't remember. And you basically go down and you just drive properties and you try to see roughly what condition they're in before the auction. So we went down and we drove 50, 60, 70 properties and we took out the roughest of the rough zip codes, but these were still incredibly downtrodden areas, very rough areas, and definitely didn't feel very safe. And this is in broad daylight, you know, during the summer when it's nice out. And we were just like, we don't want to do this. Like, we don't want to drive, you know, three, four hours, you know, every weekend. We don't want to be responsible for property that's that far away. 
And I also saw too, you know, my mom at the time said she didn't want to be driving down there all the time. She said, I'll help out more on the finance and capital side. But my cousin was already working a full-time job. He was also working as an agent on the side. And he was also either, he'd either just had his first kid or is about to have his first kid. And I just knew, I was like, he's not going to have the time to do this every weekend. Like he's got too many other responsibilities to do. So I was like, it's going to fall on me. And I was just like, I don't want to do that. I was 24 at the time. I was still going out a lot of weekends, you know, almost every weekend or every other weekend. And, you know, a lot of people will choose to sacrifice to make it work. And for me, I just didn't want to do that. And, you know, I think that's one thing that's interesting in the real estate world that I'm not the biggest fan of is I think too often you hear the story of the person that, you know, sacrificed for 10 years and didn't have a life and do that stuff. And, you know, there's a path for everybody where, yes, the more you sacrifice, the quicker you'll get to your goals, but there's nothing wrong with taking a slightly slower approach, a slightly more conservative approach. So at that time, I just didn't want to do that. Like I didn't want to spend all my weekends driving down to Philly in these properties, in these areas, despite what I knew would be very good deals and very good opportunities. It just wasn't what I wanted. So we just took a step back and, you know, looked for other avenues and that's, you know, John happened to be going into that world. We just happened to be learning about it and it was just very interesting from that perspective. Yeah. I think a lot of people ask me to like advice about getting into real estate. And the first thing I tell them is to know your own goals and your, in terms of like finance, investing, but also lifestyle, right? Like mm-hmm. what kind of lifestyle do you want to lead? Mm-hmm. Because that might have a bit big determination in the type of real estate that you end up investing in. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, now that you have gone into multifamily, do you mm-hmm. see that, um, you are able to get the lifestyle that you wanted. You know, you're not having to drive out to these properties mm-hmm. in Philly, but um, but you're still able. Like, what what does that look like for you now as a multifamily investor? Yeah. So for me, you know, the the key takeaway is there's still sacrifices that have to be made, right? Anybody that wants to invest or save money, you have to sacrifice something, and usually what that means is living below your means. So for me, it was always just, you know, I'm just going to live cheaper than what I could so I can save money and invest in the properties that we buy out of state. So in Florida, the Carolinas, Alabama, Mississippi, the Midwest, et cetera. So that was how I was going to choose to sacrifice. And it was when I first started at Toro, you know, I wasn't making a ton of money. So I lived in a single family home with seven bedrooms and I paid 500 bucks a month rent. That's what I did. And it was not a nice house. It was a college house. Half of them were college kids. So they were up at all hours of the night, but that's what I chose to do. Cause that's, it was either that or move home. And at the time I didn't want to move home. I wanted to be off on my own and live with my friends, but I knew I couldn't go live in a $2,000 a month rent. Cause I couldn't afford it. I probably could have physically, but I would have had no money left over. I don't even know if I would have eaten. However, as continued to make more money, as I continued to invest, you know, I was able to eventually move into, you know, slightly nicer places, but I was never living in a, you know, penthouse apartment in Dumbo with waterfront views paying $5,000 a month because you won't be able to invest that way. So yeah, for me, it was, you know, the lifestyle I wanted within reason, you know, everybody would obviously love to live, you know, this fantastic lifestyle and, you know, spend money like it, you know, didn't matter. Um, but as long as you have a budget in place and you do what you want, it makes sense. So yeah, it was a really good job and a way to open up myself to a world I really liked and enjoyed and wanted to learn more about. And luckily I was with a company that let me grow with the role and kind of continue to expand. And it's a company that's continued to expand. So I get to work on really fun and interesting things. And it's also allowed me to live how I want to live as well as also, you know, save enough money to invest in properties that I really like and believe in. Wow, that's amazing. It sounds like, you know, it was an amazing opportunity for you and mm. to grow and learn with the company. And now you've become like one of the main pillars mm. um, of the company. And your company, you mentioned some of the target markets that you mm-hmm. invest in and that you are located, you know, in New York. So out of state investing, right? For people like us, like you said, I'm in California and you're in New York. property prices here are very high and the numbers 
rarely work. <laughs> but out of state, it's a different story, right? You can actually yes. make the numbers work. Mm. But did you have to uh, prepare yourself to invest out of state? Like some people want to, but I feel like mm. they have some barriers. Yeah, it's definitely so it gets tricky. So it really depends. Again, it comes back to what you said of what do you want to achieve and kind of backing into it. It's the same thing with investing. There's plenty of people that make money in the Bay Area, but you're probably just breaking even and banking on appreciation. So if you're looking for any sort of cash flow, it's probably not the best area to do it. So when people typically go out of state, it's because they're looking for markets that don't have as much attention where you can get better cash flow and you know typically some good upside as well and that's what we were hoping to achieve as well which is why we invested in areas outside of New York one of the other reasons we also invested outside of New York was the landlord tenant laws were significantly more friendly towards landlords so that's another reason that is often not mentioned as frequently um you know I don't know what the landlord laws are like in California but I'm sure they're uh, not nearly as friendly as you know some other states like Texas, Florida, Georgia, et cetera. So yeah, I think going out of state, you know, the one thing you have to realize is you have to have a support team in place wherever your property is because you can't be there all the time. If a pipe bursts at 4 a.m., you got to have somebody that's ready to go out there. So for the bigger properties, 100 units, 80 units plus, you know, a couple million dollars or more, those are significantly easier because there's usually a number of property management companies that work in those areas that will handle that stuff for you. Um, as you get smaller and smaller on unit size, on dollar amounts, and also markets as well, those options become more limited. And also what I've noticed is the quality of those options become more limited. Um, so there are options, there are resources. Um, with the rise of technology, there's more and more ways to kind of automate some of that stuff. But yeah, you have to understand who those people are or what those technologies are going to be and have them in place, hopefully before you buy a property. But uh, at some point you have to get them going, you know, to be able to have that property taken care of because what a lot of people don't realize is when you get into the commercial real estate world, you know, commercial real estate is basically real estate for commerce. So it's for income. And that's where people get confused with apartments because it's quasi residential, but it's really commercial real estate because an apartment complex is for commerce versus a single family home, which is more for residents. You are buying a mini business, so you have to treat it as a business. This is not just a piece of property you're buying and hopefully it goes up in value. This is something you have to treat as a business you're buying. You have to inspect it like a business, make sure everything you're buying is what you think it is, verify that it is, and then you have to have the systems and processes in place to operate that business once you purchase it. So I think too many people think of it as, oh, it's just like a single family home, but bigger. It's like, no, you know, these are, these are businesses and, you know, there's people that support them and people that work on them to, you know, make them operate as they do. Right. I guess you, that's right. I didn't think about that, but people might not realize like we go in with a business plan, right? What, what are we purchasing this at? Where do we think we're going to bring the value to? And at what point are we going to sell off this business? Mm -hmm. And it's very different from most residential or single family home buyers. Yeah. In terms of the No, mindset. so many. It's very interesting talking to someone who buys rentals for a single family versus someone who buys commercial. Because all like I have family that owns single family. And when you talk to them, and they'll talk about numbers. They'll talk about what their rent is, what their mortgage is, and what they put down, and that's it. But they never talk about what it costs to do landscaping. They never cost about. They never talk about the cost for repairs. They never talk about the cost for insurance. They never talk about the cost for when the property is vacant. It's just not the same thought process that a lot of people have, and that's fine because it may work, and that's what people may want. But when you are operating a business, those are things you need to know. If you've ever watched an episode of Shark Tank, you know, they grill them on the numbers and you better know them like the back of your hand or else you're not going to get invested in. It's the same thing here. You know, it's if we, you know, we raise money for deals, it's not our own money, but if it's your own money or not, you better know those numbers and you better understand them because even if you know the numbers, things can go wrong. So if you don't know the numbers, it's just going to 
you know, continue to extrapolate that potential problem. Mm-hmm. On the topic of numbers, I know you send out a lot of like case studies. Is there any particular deal that you would like to share with the audience? Maybe they haven't heard of multifamily uh, or they want to get in, but what do those numbers look like? What does a typical investment look like in terms of um, multifamily? Sure. So a lot of our past deals aren't necessarily what I would call typical. And the reason being is because cap rates have come down a lot over the last two to five years. I mean, for years um, until the pandemic. So a lot of the deals we bought did much better than we expected because what we thought they would sell for versus, versus what they did sell for, and, you know, they sold for more. Um, you know, so a lot of our deals did much better than what typically happens, but I'm happy to, and you tell me which is better. I can either talk about a deal we've bought, operated, and sold, or I can talk about what deals typically look like. You tell me which is better. Um, I'm just thinking what would be most helpful for Mm -hmm. a listener, right? Um, Maybe, are you talking typical like now or in the past? (laughs) So like how we would look at a new deal, basically, like what we would be looking for. Okay, yeah, you could go through that. I think that would be good. So... Um, so like you said, we have certain target markets. So we look for areas that have, you know, growing certain trends. We want to see growing population. We want to see job growth. Uh, we want to see pre COVID trending down unemployment or low unemployment. Now it's been thrown out of whack a little bit. Um, you know, we want to see rent growth. That's high. Um, we want to see a healthy ratio of supply and demand. So we want to see more people that are coming to the area, the number of new housing units being built. Um, and we would like to see, you know, that stack pretty high. So six to one ratio or higher, maybe even more. Um, you know, so we want to see things like that. You know, we want pro business areas. Um, so, you know, we look for different markets like that. One thing that we also personally like to look for, and you don't necessarily need this, but it's just something we like. Um, we want to see a MSA, which is a metropolitan statistical area. So for anybody that doesn't know what this is, basically the city and the surrounding suburbs. Um, it's just a little bit, you know, bigger. Um, we want to see a million plus population. And the reason for that is we think there's more resources in those areas. So where I was talking about property managers earlier, there's way more property managers available in a Jacksonville, Florida than there is a Gainesville, Florida. Maybe. Um, so we just know that, Hey, if this manager doesn't work out, there's some other options. If this contractor doesn't work out, we have many more options. So, um, we just think it removes some risk from the operating side for deals. Um, but if you're in bigger markets, typically you're getting slightly lower returns as well because more people want to be in those areas. Um, but when we look at deals, um, we're looking for, you know, value add or distress deals. And basically what that means is, they're older properties that you can do something to the property and increase the income, decrease the expenses potentially, um, but overall you're increasing the net operating income, which is your total income minus your expenses to run the property, not including your mortgage, and that gives you your net operating income. And that can be done in a multitude of different ways. Um, Popular ones are renovating the apartment units. So, you know, new cabinets, counters, flooring, appliances, smart devices, um, you know, tons of different things, new bathrooms. Um, you know, but you can also do things like rebrand a property, um, paint the property. Um, you can do new siding, new roofs, new parking lots, new amenities, you know, at a fitness center, at a clubhouse, at a business center. Now, if people are working from home, maybe at a WeWork area, Um, so many different things. Um, and you're just trying to improve the overall appeal of the the property and through that process, increase the NOI, which then increases the value of the property. Um, when we buy properties, typically we hold them anywhere for three to seven years and then eventually we sell. Um, however, you could have different exit plans. You may want to refinance and hold for much longer and hold for cash flow. You may just want to hold for, you know, longer term in general. Um, but typically we like to get in, implement our business plan and get out. So people know when to expect their money back, good, bad, or indifferent. Hopefully it does well. 
Um, but sometimes we also buy properties that have much bigger problems. So we've bought two properties that were actually 100% vacant. Um, we've bought properties that were 50, 60% occupied and had units that were to the studs. Um, you know, so we also buy more distressed deals as well. Um, so when I talk about typical deals, I typically talk about the value add deal, which is, you know, occupied and going well and has cash flow. Um, but we have ability to force upside, like I said, through some of the improvements. And then we have the distressed deals, which, you know, things are going wrong. Either they require extra capital, things are broken and the current owner doesn't want to fix them. Um, maybe they just don't have the operational experience. Um, maybe there's some larger problems at hand, structural, environmental issues that can be fixed. Um, you know, those require a little bit more due diligence, um, experience, knowledge to kind of cure those problems, fix them, overcome them, and then eventually, you know, lease it up. So, um, you know, those deals are a little bit more hands-on, require a little bit more capital. Um, oftentimes will require more of a construction type view towards it. Um, but those also have a little bit more risk and also a little bit more reward. So we kind of go up and down that spectrum a little bit. A fully empty building or even up to like 60% vacant is a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Not that many people will take on that kind of risk. Has mm -hmm. your acquisition um, variables that you looked at changed since this whole pandemic came upon us? So definitely, you know, there's a greater emphasis on collections because before the pandemic, you know, delinquency rates, which is people not paying and collections is if, you know, if I have a hundred units and I have 95 units occupied, how many of those people am I actually collecting on? Delinquency is the same thing, but just the opposite. So how many people are not paying? In delinquency, you would see half a percent, a percent, maybe two or three, depending upon the area, the market. Um, you know, typically, you weren't seeing too much higher than that. Um, you know, now with unemployment going through the roof, with the economy, you know, basically coming to a standstill, um, you know, it's starting to open up today's, you know, June 22nd. So things are starting to open up a little bit. People are getting jobs back. A lot of our tenants are going back to work. Um, you know, there was a really big focus on collections. So that'll be a focus for us going forward. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're definitely looking at things a little bit differently. Um, you know, one of the big drivers for value that a lot of people don't realize is not just what is your NOI and your cap rate because 90 plus percent of properties are utilizing some form of debt on their properties. Whatever the debt market is, is going to drive some of what we can offer because if there was no debt tomorrow, like let's just say the debt world vanished in an instant the values on properties would be cut on everybody's properties instantly because debt is set at a fixed return and anything over that increases the return on equity. If all of a sudden now, you know, I don't have that ability to increase my returns, you know, one, I've got to come up with significantly more money, which makes it tougher to buy. And two, all of my returns just went down across the board. Now, yes, things would be significantly safer because debt adds some risk to it. But, you know, valuations would be cut. So because the debt world did get a little bit shaky and things got a little bit more expensive, a lot of people stopped lending. Anything that we're looking to buy right now is we wouldn't offer the same price we would five, six months ago. Um, but realistically, what's happened is, you know, anybody that was thinking about selling is just holding off until, you know, we get some more clarity because, you know, collections have been pretty good for the most part. You know, the government's done a pretty good job of supporting tenants and people and their ability to pay to a certain degree. It hasn't been perfect. It hasn't, I don't even know if I would say it was great, but they've done a good enough job that collections have been fairly healthy um, on average. So nobody's really forced to sell right now because they aren't doing a good job. So people can afford to hang on. Um, what might start happening is if you know, people's loans come due during this time period and they need to refinance. Maybe they think about selling versus refinancing. Um, but, 
you know, I don't know how much of that will happen. So yeah, things are changing slightly. You know, we're, we're being a little bit more opportunistic. So we're looking for people that have to sell versus don't have to sell. Um, but unfortunately there hasn't been a lot of that yet. You know, things in the commercial world move a little bit slower than a lot of other places. You know, the commercial world didn't really even start talking about the impact until the stock market had fully come all the way down and it started recovering. I had multiple people who were laughing at the stock market and were saying real estate will never be impacted and then quickly went quiet as people started worrying about collecting rent. Um, but be that as it may, most people have done okay. So yeah, things are definitely changing. Um, you know, we're being a little bit more cautious. Um, we're not in a rush to buy anything. You know, it's not like we have money sitting on the sidelines we have to place. Um, but overall, the fundamentals are still basically there. Um, you know, people are, you know, still moving to the areas that we buy in. So where there's demand and, you know, not enough supply, you know, things will continue to increase. You know, when there's not enough housing units to meet demand, there'll still be people living there, you know, in the multifamily world, you know, people still need a place to live. So residential is always a really secure place to be in um, versus areas like hotels and retail and office, which have been hurt to either, you know, a little bit or a lot of bit, depending upon which one you talk about. So, you know, nothing's changed overall. We're still trying to figure out where we're going to come out of this. And nobody knows. Uh, a big part is what happens with the virus and or a vaccine. What happens with unemployment and what governments will allow people to do in, in terms of returning back to work. And also what will continue to happen with you know, stimulus money and unemployment money. Um, you know, if those things, you know, if the money runs out and unemployment is around 11, 12%, deals are going to start hurting because their collections are going to fall pretty quickly. And then there'll be some opportunities and some people are going to lose some money. But if things continue to slowly open back up, unemployment continues to drop and they continue to, you know, prop up the economy for months or even, you know, a year, depending upon how long it takes people probably won't get hurt too bad. You know, maybe some people won't have sold at the top of the market, but they'll still do well. Um, and if, you know, the virus goes away or there's a vaccine tomorrow, I think things will, you know, turn around pretty quickly. So um, we're, we're cautious. We're trying not to move too quick. Um, we're trying to get a good understanding of what's going on, but if the right deal came across our desk, you know, we would take it down. Yeah, I know. Even for myself, um, when everything first hit, I just took a break from looking at deals because no one really knew what was going on, right? This is brand new. We've never experienced anything quite like this before. Mm -hmm. And I think the stimulus package probably really helped because the numbers that I see were nearly not as bad as I anticipated them to be right yep. in terms of collections but like you said what's going to happen if that stops right when that stops mm -hmm. and also i think i saw that lenders were getting stricter so that possibility that you said of lending drying up is like is, is it definitely a possibility right mm -hmm. or at least they're going to get a lot stricter and reserves are going to go up right like they already have and that will also shrink the pool, I think, of available um, money to borrow from for a lot of people, mm -hmm. um, which may mean less competition for like people like you later on. But what I'm seeing is sellers aren't really there matching with how things are, right? They are not lowering their prices. They're not ready to let go of their properties yet. And they probably don't have to yet, right? They're yep. not forced to sell yet. So it's kind of hard to tell how, how things are going to end up in the next like six months, a year or two. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering for you, for Toro, like what are your goals for this year? Like, yeah, so I'll answer that quickly. Just want to say, I think what is really important and one thing that took me a while to really understand commercial real estate, things move so much slower. You know, it takes longer to affect change. Things don't move nearly as quick. You know, you look at things on a quarterly or yearly basis. So, you know, it feels like we've been in this pandemic forever. It's only been three months, give or take. It really, in the grand scheme of things, it hasn't been that long. If there was a deal that was distressed because of the pandemic, it was the final nail in the coffin. There was things beforehand 
that they weren't doing well. So it's not like overnight there was a flood of, you know, great buying opportunities because, you know, the market got crushed. That just didn't happen. So, you know, three months has not been that long. Deals haven't been hit as hard as we thought. And what's really important too is this is an election year. So a lot of people don't want to misstep with the election coming up. So what I think will be a very interesting potential turning point is what happens after the election because people are not up for re-election immediately. They don't have to worry about that. I'm very curious to see how decision-making changes a month or two prior to the election and a month or two after. Um, So, and if there's a change of office between, I don't want to get political, but if there's a change in office, oftentimes there's a change of policy, a change in direction, stuff like that too. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in, you know, Q4 in, you know, October, November, December, and starting next year. Um, But one thing that I think, you know, a decision we made very quickly that I think was actually very good was we kind of said, hey, deal flow is going to stop. Nobody knows what's going on. So let's just stop basically looking. You know, we just stopped spending time on acquisitions. And we just started working on a lot of things internally that we had put by the wayside. So a lot of our own systems, processes, the way we do business, um, we just took a long, hard look at and have been trying to do things better or work on things that we can control. You know, you can only control what you can control. The market's the market. You know, the economy's the economy. The world's the world. The virus is the virus. I can't control that. So all I can do is, you know, do whatever I can do. And what we can do is work on things within our business that will make us quicker, faster, more efficient, better communicators, um, better operators, things like that. So, you know, we worked on our back office, our website, some social media stuff, our investor relations. Um, you know, a lot of our time also is spent on asset management, you know, making sure collections were going good. You know, we did all that stuff with the PPP loans. Um, you know, so a lot of time went to that as well. But very quickly, we just kind of realized that, hey, it's going to be very tough to buy a new deal. Um, and even if we want to, it's going to be so tough because we have no idea. You know, debt was changing week to week and getting worse and worse. We were like, how can we even buy a deal when we don't know what our debt's going to be? Like that's extra risk involved that we've never had before. So we just kind of put it on hold for a little bit, looked loosely, kept having conversations, but you know, deal flow dried up for everyone overnight, basically. And just started working on, you know, some other things that we could. So um, you know, I think that looking back was a, a smart decision, but it seemed obvious to us at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is a great time for self-reflection and also to work on yourself, right, or your business. So that's a really smart move on your guys's part. Um, just looking back as a whole on your whole real estate career, is there anything that you would have maybe done differently if you had a second go around at it? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I think one thing I probably would have pushed myself to do earlier on was be more outspoken and help more people earlier. Um, You know, we do a good deal of social media content creation. We have our own podcast now too. And I held off for a long time doing that stuff because I was like, who am I? Why is anybody going to listen to me? You know, what can I even offer? And I always thought, oh, well, I have to be, you know, so experienced, so knowledgeable, so far above everybody else to talk to other people. And then I realized there's such a big audience of people that know nothing or very little. And yeah, if I'm on a scale of a hundred, I may be at, you know, level 20 or level 50. I have no idea where I am, but there's someone that's on level zero or, you know, level 10, however you want to look at it. And yeah, maybe I can't get them to level 50, or I can't speak about something on that level because I haven't done it yet. But, you know, I can help that person get from zero to five or from five to 10. Um, So when I talk and communicate and, you know, try to help other people, I'm very careful to stay in my lane and talk about things I know about um, and just say very bluntly, if it's something I feel comfortable or uncomfortable about, or I don't know about. Um, So a lot of times when I talk to people or do things, my goal is to 
come up with questions that I would want to be getting the answer to and to tell them, hey, here's what you need to get answered. If I can answer a few of them, great, but at least I can kind of point them in the right direction. So I wish I would have known that sooner. I wish I would have known how slowly things move in commercial real estate sooner because I was very gung-ho, you know, let's buy, you know, 5,000 units in the first year and you know, it just doesn't work that way um, unless you have access to tons and tons of money. Um, so yeah, de- things definitely move slower, especially in some of the medium to large assets. So, you know, 80, 100, 200 units, things take time um, and you have to work that into your underwriting. So a lot of times when you get a deal from a broker or from somebody else, it'll be, oh, you know, you can renovate 50% of the units in the first year and push around a hundred bucks. And it's like, it doesn't realistically work that way because when you buy a property and you take it over, there's a transition period. People need to, you know, people need to find the feet. There's new ways of doing things. They got to figure out their way around the property. Um, you know, so you may not start renovating units for the first month or two months or three months, um, you know, depending upon what you do. You know, if you've got a distressed building, you know, you may think it's going to take you two weeks to get permits and it takes you six. So a lot of stuff takes longer than you think. So it was changing from that to saying, okay, you know, let's just pretend, even if we think it's going to happen in a year, let's pretend it's going to happen in two or in 18 months. Because if it does happen, well, it happened how we thought. And if it just happens quicker, great. It's just a bonus. So I think that took a while to learn as well. Cause it was a, you know, a lesson that had to be repeated and, you know, hit into my head several times to understand. Um, yeah, I think those are some of the bigger ones. Yeah, for sure. I mean, real estate moves at a different pace, especially if you're coming from like the stock market, right? Mm -hmm. So having to slow yourself down and also just putting yourself out there earlier, right? is something you wish you had done. I think Mm -hmm. maybe a lot of people go through that same type of mindset that you had, right? Like they want to share, but they're like, who am I, right? Who am Mm -hmm. I to share? Who am I to say anything? Do you have any like words of advice for people who may be just getting into real estate or they want to invest in multifamily or where, where can they go? Where can they start any books, Mm -hmm. podcasts? Yeah. So, one thing I like to give advice for someone that's like brand new and they haven't settled on like how they want to do it yet is there's so many different niches and avenues and ways to be involved in real estate that you wouldn't realize from the beginning. So many people know about the basic ways, right? Wholesaling, single family flipping, multifamily, hold, whatever. But there's so many different ways to get involved in real estate. So what I really encourage people to do is look up several different types of asset classes. So multifamily, office, residential, mobile home park, self-storage. I just gave you a bunch so you can start there. And then learn four, five, 10 different ways to invest in each one of those different assets. And some of them will be the same for each. So it could be, you know, seller financing, buy and hold, or it could be preferred equity in multifamily syndications. Um, you know, it could be lending for fix and flips. It could be, you know, being a joint venture partner on small multifamily. There's so many different ways to get involved. And until you start understanding the pros and cons in each and match it to what you want, you're, you're probably going to miss opportunities that would fit for you. You know, that's one of the things I also think I did pretty well was, you know, I tried several different things before I kind of found my feet in multifamily And I still try different things. So I've looked at land flipping, looked at multifamily, looked at self-storage, looked at developing and, you know, gone down the path of trying to start it and gotten very close on a few. Like we almost did Airbnb investing right before the pandemic. And thank God I took as long as I did because I would have gotten smoked in a couple of the areas I was looking at. Um, But, you know, continue to explore different options. And I think that's something more people need to do and not just do wholesaling because, you know, they saw somebody do it and they think that's the right path. Really take the time to understand what's right. But what'll probably happen is you'll come up with a few different things that you could possibly do. You've just got to eventually pick one and try it because you'll never know until you do it. And what'll happen is if, if you spend too long, you know, you're never going to know if it's the right or wrong decision until you try it. So if you take an extra three months to decide which one to pick, it's just going to take you three months longer to figure out 
if that one's the right or wrong choice. You know, if it takes you a year of trying, well, instead of starting and it taking a year, you waited three months. So now it's going to take you a year and three months to figure out if that was the right one. So do some research, figure it out, figure out what you want to achieve, figure out a few, and then just choose one and try it. And some you'll figure out very quickly, like I did with the taxi properties, but I took the trip down to Philly, spent the whole day there, met with John two weeks prior to understand it. So it took two weeks and a day to realize I didn't like it, or it could take you know eight months like the single family flipping did. So um, I really encourage people to try to learn more avenues and really take the time to explore them. Um, but in terms of resources, um, you know, I think obviously bigger pockets is great. I don't think it's as good as it used to be. Um, it definitely feels more spammy than it used to be, but you can still meet a great, a ton of people. It's a great place to network at the very least, because, you know, if you write a question and 10 people answer, I would say at least half are probably worth connecting with. Um, you know, go on Facebook groups, go on meetup, you know, everything's virtual now, but you know, people in your area or in the area you're looking to invest in are very valuable. So connect with people in the markets you're looking to invest in, in the asset class you're looking to invest in, in the same style of investing. Um, podcasts, um, there's so many out there. Um, if you want to check out ours, it's called the Real Estate Investing Experience. Um, but, you know, there's tons of them out there. Um, understand, again, what type of niche you're looking for and then just listen to a bunch and you know, find the person you like and listen to them. Um, I like if you're interested in multifamily syndication, Joe Fairless has a book called the best ever syndication book. I've read about half of it, but everybody I've spoken to that's read the whole thing says it's very, very good. Um, it's not that cheap. I think it's like 40 or 50 bucks. Um, but I've heard it's well worth it. Everything I've read in there was very thoughtful and well laid out. So if you're like, Hey, you know, I want a quasi playbook textbook for syndication. I think that's a good option to think about. Um, trying to think what else I'm not the biggest reader, so I don't have a ton of books. Um, but yeah, those are a couple places to get started, I guess. Well, you guys have a great podcast and also some great advice for beginners because I think it's good to do the research up front because like you said, there are so many different niches and a lot of people end up just picking one and then they get shiny object syndrome later yeah. on when they hear about like, oh, mobile home parks, self-storage, that's a thing and they get distracted, right? But if you did that research up front, found the ones that you like plus mm-hmm. fit the lifestyle that you want and then try them out, it's less likely that you'll get distracted later on because I think it does take persistence too. Like once you've picked something, stick with it because it takes Mm -hmm. a little bit of time before the results start to show. Oh, for sure. It definitely takes time. Um, I think it's interesting that you brought up shiny object syndrome. I think once you pick something and you go for it, other things are going to come up that are going to sound better. My advice would be don't ignore it but do an 80-20 rule. Continue to spend 80% of your time on whatever you picked and really give it your effort. But there's nothing wrong with spending 20% of your time exploring other things. Um, you know, I've done that with several different things. You know, I've looked at things as, be- you, know, you know, I've looked at like investing in laundromats. I've looked at investing in like Amazon stores. Um, you know, I've looked at drop shipping. So don't not look at things because exploring those options has helped me in other areas because it helps me understand different things and take different ideas to other Area. So don't not explore things, but make sure your focus is on whatever you pick. Really give it, like you said, the time and dedication and persistence. Because, you know, one thing that I know for sure is if we had been dead set on flipping, if we were like, we just want to be flippers, seven, eight months was not enough time to truly fail. You know, we failed because of a lack of execution. But I know if we had stuck it out and continued to try to figure it out, we could have eventually done it. So, you know, keep that in your mind where it was, you know, seven, eight months, we didn't do a single flip, you know, working nights and weekends, but, you know, we just decided to pivot and go to something else because we didn't feel the fit was right for us as we learned more. But I know if we were like, Hey, this is exactly what we want to do. We love it. It may have taken, you know, an extra day or it could have taken an extra year, 
you know, to kind of make it work, but eventually you'll get there because as you continue to try and do and fail, you're just going to get better and better and more knowledgeable and better educated and make better connections, meet more people that know what you're trying to do. And then eventually you're going to find some success. Um, so yes, persistence and dedication is hugely important. Um, you know, my first two, you know, my first two years out of college, I technically made below the poverty line. Like, you know, so even just from a you know personal business perspective, like I, you know, me personally, I tried a couple different, you know, avenues of, you know, work or business or whatever. Um, and yeah, like, you know, it was just, you know, continuing to try new things and build and work and, you know, grow and try different things, you know, eventually paid off where now, you know, doing pretty well. So yeah, persistence is super key. Yeah. So many great points, right? Like I know some flippers who they didn't get their first deal until like a year later, but had they given up, you know, they might've never gotten to that deal. Mm -hmm. And also great point is like, that 80 20 rule, right? Some things that you learn maybe from FBA or drop shipping is still mm -hmm. related to business. And there might be something there that you can implement into your multifamily business. So mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah. And I think, you know, you never know how you're going to take something from one thing and apply it to another. And also too, like, you know, you don't want to get burned out either. Like it's tough to do something for 12 months and have zero success at it or very little success. So, you know, spending, even if that 80, 20 is like, okay, like, you know, I'm doing this for two months and then I spend a week looking at something else. No one's saying that you have to do like, you know, every day, 80, 20, like it can be one day is 50, 50 or one day, zero, a hundred. And the next day is a hundred, zero, like whatever works for you. But, and maybe that 20% isn't exploring other things. Maybe it's, you know, taking a break or, you know, doing something else or, you know, looking at, other businesses like writing or podcasting or, you know, video create, I mean, whatever you want to do, um, you know, cause burnout's a real thing too. Um, so, you know, definitely some people are much better at it. Me, I experienced burnout. So I think it's important to kind of work some of that stuff in. Oh, for sure. But so it's like, you got to find a rhythm and pattern and schedule that works for you. And the mm -hmm. beauty of real estate is it, there is no set, rule there's no set time right like mm -hmm. everybody does it differently and whatever works for you works yeah for sure no i think yeah sometimes there's like i said there's too many it feels like there's so many people doing it one way that you have to do it the same way you know take those systems and processes and you know apply it to your own self and how you want to do things and how it fits you um and it's just trial and error i mean there's tons of things I'm still figuring out every single day, um, you know, every week and, you know, feel like I'm climbing up a mountain and never going to figure it out. And slowly but surely you do. So um, don't, you know, never beat yourself up too hard. Yeah. And if you ever feel, you know, down about it, I'm sure you can reach out because the real estate community is there for you. A hundred percent. Yeah. That's definitely something I'm reminding myself of more recently is to continue to reach out to people, talk to people, talk problems through with other people because a lot of times they have a, a good perspective and understand where you're coming from or they've heard it from somebody else or so many different things and something you feel like, you know, somebody may not be helpful, you know, they could be helpful in a way you never would have thought. So it's something I need to do a better job of doing of like reaching out to more people and expressing problems or issues I'm having and seeing what other people can come up with because I've gotten some really interesting solutions to problems I had that I would have never thought of on my own from places I wouldn't have expected it. So, um, it's something I'm continually, you know, learning and experiencing and it's not something I do naturally. Um, so it's something, you know, I'm continuing to try to do and implement. So I encourage people to do it more and more than they think. For sure. And Chris, if any of our listeners would like to reach out to you, how can they find you? Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm on almost every social media. Um, but the main ones are Instagram, uh, at Chris.Grenzig, LinkedIn, just search Chris Grenzig. Um, if you want to email me, you can Chris at ToroRep.com, T-O-R-O-R-E-P. Uh, that's also our company website. If you want to go check it out. Um, if you're interested in investing with us, there's an investor questionnaire on there. 
you can fill out and we'll get in touch with you. Um, and like I said, if you want to check out our podcast, it's called the real estate investing experience. Um, you can search it on any and all podcast listening platforms, including YouTube. You can check out our website, which is the R E I E X P.com. Um, yeah, that's basically it. And those will all be in the show notes. And I know we didn't get to talk through a case study, but I'm sure if you email Chris, he'd be happy to share that information with you. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time today, Chris. Yeah. Happy to be on. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's great talking to you. Wow. So much great information. Here are my top eight takeaways. One, what you want to do may be harder than it seems, but it's definitely not impossible. Two, real estate is a community, a space where people are willing to help each other. Three, reasons to go out of state include cash flow and landlord-friendly states. More on location later. Four, know your numbers like the back of your hand. Five, factors used to determine location include growth in terms of population, job, and rent. Six, be patient because in commercial real estate, things move a lot slower. Seven, you can always help even if you are a beginner. Eight, look up several different asset classes before deciding on your niche. Hey, it means so much to me that you took the time and spent a little bit of it with me today. Thank you so much. And if you want more like this, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen because I have some really great guests lined up and I don't want you to miss any of them. And if you felt anything during this episode, whether it's inspired, motivated, or uplifted, please take a second to share this episode with someone directly or on your Instagram and tag us and we'd be happy to reshare what you post. Thank you so much and I will see you in the next one.